Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Gary Mormino, author of Land of Sunshine, State of Dreams, A Social History of Modern Florida. And we've got in America, everyone seemingly wanting a, a new car, a new house, and a vacation in Florida. And, and that prosperity will generate really 60 years of almost unprecedented growth. We'll discuss documents from Henry Flagler's Luxury Hotels. As part of the, the A.M. Taylor collection, we actually have uh, hundreds of documents from uh, many of, of the Flagler uh, hotels. Of course, the uh, Alcazar and the Ponce de Leon Hotel in St. Augustine. And talk about blue crabs in Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. is a retired professor of history from the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg, where he directed the Florida Studies program. Dr. Mormino is co-editor of the Florida History and Culture series for the University Press of Florida. He's probably best known as the author of the book Land of Sunshine, State of Dreams, A Social History of Modern Florida. Most recently, Gary Mormino is a contributor to an updated and revised version of The History of Florida, edited by Michael Gannon, which has been a landmark book since it was first published in 1996. There was, I think, always a feeling, if you talk to uh, historians of Florida, many people always thought the 1996 volume was a little conservative, that it was uh, top-heavy with periods of Spanish history, uh, some of the essays, I think, were relatively weak. The the essay on the Gilded Age really didn't incorporate a lot of the new details. So uh, a revision was was uh, needed, and I think they've done a splendid job adding. Michael Gannon has added a chapter on uh, environmental history. I'm not sure anyone could have done that in 1993. I mean, uh, when when we first conceived of this idea, and I should add the the chapter that Ray Mole and I did on a social history of modern Florida, only was inserted at the last minute. We thought, we're kind of missing the, the biggest story of all Florida since World War II, particularly looking at it. So, so uh, uh, they've done a nice job. 
the the press is, is always University Press of Florida has done a splendid job, and Michael only Michael Gannon could have probably brought this off. I mean, bringing such disparate scholars together. Gary Mormino's award-winning books include Immigrants on the Hill and The Immigrant World of Ybor City, but his best-known work is his 2005 book, Land of Sunshine, State of Dreams, A Social History of Modern Florida. I asked Dr. Mormino when modern Florida begins. That is a good question. Uh, You'll get a lot of different answers. Some would argue the day Ponce stepped ashore uh, changed everything. Others, I think the more conventional Traditional answers would be maybe the 1880s when Florida's transportation, communication empire gel. I would argue the 1920s when Florida becomes Florida, all of those values we associate with Florida, speed over the top, uh, jazz age. Uh, or others would argue World War II or the, the end of World War II. So there's really not an answer. Uh, in my book, I kind of defined it as, um, as, as the, the, the new Florida dream emerges at the end of World War II. During World War II, hundreds of thousands of soldiers trained in Florida, and many brought their families to live in the Sunshine State after the war. Gary Mormino looks at this period in both his book, Land of Sunshine, State of Dreams, and in an essay in the book, The History of Florida. First, I think we need some perspective. Where, where exactly did Florida stand in 1940? It was the smallest state in the American South, slightly fewer than 2 million inhabitants. Arkansas and South Carolina had more inhabitants than Florida in 1940. Uh, today, we're going on 20 million. Perhaps today, no one's going to quite know the day, but sometime in the next month or so, Florida will supplant New York as the third largest state. And in, in so many ways, World War II is the linchpin between this older Florida, sparsely settled, inaccessible to most Americans, unknown to most Americans, and this hustling, hurly-burly of a state of 20 million people today. Would, would Florida still be an important place without World War II? Certainly. It, it, in many ways, it intensified those five years. In fact, I was thinking how fascinating it is. Civil War is a five-year period, basically, 1861, 1865. Begin the transformation of Florida. You can you can overplay this hand, by the way. I, I caution that it's easy to say everything changed by 1945. Essentially, Florida had the same economy. It was a it was a wobbly three-legged stool of tourism, agriculture, and extractive industries to begin the war and pretty much end. We didn't have a great uh, aerospace industry like California. Uh, Cape Canaveral came later almost by accident, but it wasn't because of rocket research in Brevard County. It, the, the, a lot of things are. But the war, the, the greatest consequence of the war was exposure. About two million GIs were here anywhere from a day to a year more of settling. You had 200 military installations, and seemingly everyone pledged they would return someday. And, and essentially they did, as, as transplants, as tourists, as uh, 
retirees. In the post-World War II 1950s, the population of Florida nearly doubled from 2.7 million to almost 5 million. It can be argued, as Gary Mormino does in Land of Sunshine, State of Dreams, that this post-1945 era is when we begin to see the Florida that we recognize today. Mormino explains how this intense period of population growth affected the state. Well, in a word, uh, uh, prosperity. I mean, that that's the great legacy of World War II, one of the great legacies. Uh, the war, I mean, you think of, uh, I've got, I spent a great deal of time on this new book I'm finishing on World War II, but VJ, August 14, 1945, is, is a fascinating day to observe Floridians and Americans in celebration. It's collectively, spontaneously, the happiest day in Florida history. The interesting question, just to think about, what's the happiest day? Well, first of all, you had to have mass communications and all this. But if you think of, here's one way to look at it. The stars were in alignment for Florida and America in the fall of 1945. Almost all of our boys are coming home. Uh, Our cities weren't bombed. Americans have money in their pocket. In fact, the standard of living improves on the home front during the war. Uh, ask someone who's studying Japan in World War II, the home front, or Britain in World War II. Uh, and we've got in America, everyone seemingly wanting a, a new car, a new house, and a vacation in Florida. And, and that prosperity will generate really 60 years of almost unprecedented growth. Gary Mormino and Raymond Mall have the last word in the newly updated edition of the History of Florida, essentially bringing the reader up to the present. Mormino says that his chapter on World War II and the one he wrote with Raymond Mall have been revised for this new edition. The big change was in the uh, the essay with Ray Mall. First of all, we changed the title. The new title is Boom, Bust, and Uncertainty, A Social History of Modern Florida. And the big change there, there's probably four or five changes, pages on the recession. And uh, it's, it, it's, I want to, I, I want to write a book in a few years on Florida since 2000, incorporating, and every day I collect clippings on this, trying to figure out how has the last six or seven years affected us. I mean, you need a new lexicon. Uh, How many Floridians had heard the terms underwater mortgage, zombie homes, uh, uh, flipping? uh, I mean, it's just an extraordinary leveling of Florida. Uh, Foreclosure boat tours of Cape Coral. Uh, I gave a... uh, (laughs) I bet I've had a dozen national journalists in my office the last five years, and they all want to know where I should send them to understand this. And I always say, Cape Coral. And uh, I was interviewed by uh, George Packard of uh, New Yorker. He asked, I need a metaphor for Florida. And I said, well, you think about it. Every day, a thousand newcomers arrive every day in Florida. They buy sod. They, they pay taxes, they buy newspapers. What's going to happen when a 1,000 people stop coming every day? And we found out. And I said, in some ways, Florida is a giant Ponzi scheme. We're fine as long as people keep filling up the pot. And, of course, he titled his article, The Great Ponzi Scheme. And uh, I, got, I got calls from Chambers of Commerce saying, thanks, <laughs> thanks for boosting Florida. <laughs>
Gary Mormino is one of the best-known historians in the state, particularly for studying modern Florida. The Ponzi scheme metaphor he just mentioned, while negative, is a compliment to Florida compared to much of the commentary in the popular new book, Finding Florida, The True History of the Sunshine State, by investigative journalist T.D. Allman. Gary Mormino is not a fan of Allman's book. He is an extraordinary journalist and, and organizes one of the greatest book tours I have, I have ever witnessed, uh, what I would do for his agent. But the, the book is, is just an injustice, I think, to, to scholarship. First of all, he, he, and he doesn't pretend that he's conducted any original research, and he, he wants to shout out that I'm the first ever to have done this. So he makes a great deal that uh, Florida historians have inculcated these myths about Ponce and the Fountain of Youth. I don't know a historian in the last hundred years who's propagated the Fountain of Youth. Uh, So uh, I find the really shoddy scholarship. I find uh, he's an egomaniac, so I guess... I don't like the book. (laughs) Gary Mormino was part of a gathering in St. Augustine that included many luminaries of Florida history, including Michael Gannon, Eugene Lyon, Paul Hoffman, and Kathy Deegan, who came together in recognition of the new edition of The History of Florida. Gary Mormino celebrates Florida's past, but is looking to the future. This may be the last gathering. Uh, What's the line, Uh, the old guard dies but never surrenders? We may, we may never see Michael Gannon and Eugene Lyons and uh, this cast uh, all assembled together again. I mean, since the 1996 book, we've lost contributors to that volume. Sam Proctor, Charlie Arnotti, Bill Coker, George Pozzetta. I mean, these were giants. So uh, that's the wonderful thing about Florida history. As someone who recently retired, but I hope I'm very active, is that uh, you can always be replaced. No one is ir- In fact, f- part of the, the great tradition of Florida is someone revising your work. Gary Mormino is author of the book Land of Sunshine, State of Dreams, A Social History of Modern Florida, and a contributor to the newly revised and updated History of Florida, edited by Michael Gannon. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Established in 1856, the Florida Historical Society is the oldest existing cultural organization in the state. We present a variety of educational projects and programs throughout the state, including Florida Frontiers. Become a member of the Florida Historical Society today by going to myfloridahistory.org and clicking on the Join Now button. That's myfloridahistory.org. 
week of the new year Oh, it's 80 degrees The rest of the country Is in a shiver and freeze Breakfast on the balcony And the salt spray in the air It almost seems like it ain't fair And the place to be is at the Floridiana Hotel Soaking up the sunshine And riding the swells Won't you send me a postcard from the Floridiana Hotel Bringing me blue skies and wishing me well Fendi Biasi is Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This week, Ben brings us papers and documents from the manager of the Alcazar Hotel, which is now the Leitner Museum in St. Augustine. Oh, that's right. Uh, we're actually talking about a gentleman uh, named A.M. Taylor. Uh, he was originally from New Jersey, uh, came down to visit St. Augustine, fell in love with the place, as, as many northern visitors did, and decided to move uh, down to Florida permanently in, in the late 1880s. Uh, we know that uh, sometime in the mid-1890s, he started working for um, uh, Henry Flagler's East Coast um, uh, Hotel Company uh, and eventually became the manager of the Alcazar um, Hotel and Casino, which, uh, like you said, is, is now the Leitner Museum. You also have some documents from the Ponce de Leon Hotel, which is now Flagler College, which is uh, across the street from the old Alcazar Hotel. Yeah, that's right. Uh, as part of the, the A.M. Taylor collection, we actually have uh, hundreds of documents from uh, many of, of the Flagler uh, hotels. Um, of course, the, the Alcazar and the Ponce de Leon Hotel in St. Augustine. Um, a few of those documents are really interesting and, and kind of uh, give a, a sign of the times. Um, one of which that we have here is a small uh, card with, uh, um, it looks like it has little coupons on the bottom. It's about four inches by two inches, and it's um, given out by the, the St. Augustine um, uh, Alcazar Hotel and Casino. And it says uh, uh, this this ticket is is uh, redeemable for five bicycle instruction lessons uh, for two dollars. So you get five lessons for two dollars. Uh, we also have a, a, an interesting little card inviting uh, Mr. and Mrs. Taylor to one of the formal balls. So. Um, A.M. Taylor was in charge of, of not only managing the hotel, day-to-day operations, uh, but he was also involved in a lot of the entertainment. And we know his, his background was sort of in, uh, when he lived uh, up in the Northeast, was in acting. So he uh, scheduled a lot of performances and, and uh, these very grand-styled uh, uh, balls and banquets and things like that. Um, but like I said, he was also in charge of um, a lot of the day-to-day -day affairs. And uh, an example of that is, is an itemized list. Uh, it looks like a bill, actually, from a um, upholstery company in St. Augustine. Um, the bridal chambers of uh, one of the one of the rooms at the Ponce de Leon Hotel, which is now Flagler College, was being completely upholstered. And you can see every chair within this entire room is being redone. And what's interesting is the total bill only came to $122.24, which, uh, you know, in 1902 is a substantial amount of money for a single room uh, at a hotel. But, uh, uh, but it's kind of interesting to, again, sort of a sign of the times. Henry Flagler started his railroad empire from St. Augustine and built other luxury hotels along the railway as it moved south along Florida's east coast, and you have some documents uh, from some of them as well. 
That's right. Like I said, we have uh, in this collection a few hundred documents from from all of, of the flag of the hotels. Um, we've actually got some uh, mainly receipts, but again, it's really an interesting uh, uh, way to, to look at sort of the day-to-day logistical operations of these hotels. We have here a, a, a receipt for the Hotel Orman, which is in Orman, Florida, um, dated 1903 for 10 boxes of oranges, or a total of uh, $55. Um, we also have a receipt for, uh, looks like a, a, it says here, a bushel of new Irish potatoes delivered to the Hotel uh, Royal Palm, which is down in Miami, or was down in Miami, excuse me, and uh, the total cost of that bushel of new Irish potatoes was, was $4. Uh, but one that's very interesting and, again, sort of gives a great, um, you know, look at, at this uh, very kind of... Um, Victorian era, uh, you know, era of, of, of very wealthy people coming down to Florida. We have a receipt from a, a cigar company out of Havana, Cuba. And what's interesting, though, is, is the volume of cigars being ordered. Um, it's a total of, of uh, over 3,000 cigars from this cigar company uh, being sent to the Royal Poinciana Hotel, which is in um, West Palm Beach, uh, at a total, of, a total cost of $350. Now, the wealthy patrons of these luxury hotels needed to be entertained, and we know that the world-renowned performer Annie Mae Abbott wanted to display her special powers at Mr. Flagler's luxury hotels. And this is Yeah, this is really interesting. So uh, Annie Mae Abbott sent a letter to, actually to the passenger agent of the Florida East Coast Railroad uh, in January of 1906, um, and she was actually sort of, uh, she enclosed some, some newspaper clippings of, of some of her feats and other performances that she'd done, and um, you could tell that she's trying really to, to advertise her, her skills, and she wants to be uh, on this, this uh, East Coast hotel circuit, because at the time it was a very popular uh, area, and, and again, there were a lot of very wealthy, very influential people who came down to Florida every year and stayed in Flagler's hotels, uh, so she's writing, uh, asking for um, um, a reference to whoever plans the events, which at that time would have been A.M. Taylor. Uh, and wanted to be uh, to be put on the bill. What's really neat too is that her her particular skill was that um, she only weighed 103 pounds, but it says here she can lift 10 men, but 10 men couldn't lift her. <laughs> All right, sounds like an interesting act. Well, thanks, Ben, as always. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Won't you send me a postcard from the Floridiana Hotel Bringing me blue skies and wishing me well Won't you bring me blue skies and wish me well This is Florida Frontiers. Many creatures indigenous to Florida have made their way onto the endangered species list. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has this look at the blue crab in Florida. The original environment of Florida has changed. Blue crabs are very adaptable. They can live anywhere from fresh water all the way out to uh, hardened shorelines on seawalls and out to full-strength seawater. But the changes in shorelines over time do impact uh, the population. That was Dr. Ryan Gandy speaking about blue crabs in Florida. He's a research scientist with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Research Institute. In 1998, researchers with the Florida Department of Environmental Protection and the Florida Marine Research Institute warned that more information about blue crabs in Florida 
needed to be known. The problem was that their populations were threatened due to Florida's development along the coastline and the potential impact of fishing and environmental conditions. Dr. Gandhi is one of the scientists involved in counting and tracking the blue crab population to make sure the species are not threatened or endangered. Dr. Gandhi tells us what blue crabs are and where they are located in Florida. Blue crab is a type of swimming crab. They're most common in estuaries anywhere from full fresh water all the way down the estuary to full seawater. And uh, they range anywhere from, you know, half an inch wide all the way up seven or eight, maybe even up to nine inches in shell width. And they're commonly found, you know, and commonly fished throughout the, the east coast and Gulf of Mexico in estuaries. Here, Dr. Gandhi tells us what the greatest impacts are to the blue crab population in Florida. Over time, what we've seen is blue crab populations vary annually. They, act, they react really readily to rainfall events. They react negatively to drought. And so what we see over time, the climate of Florida was very wet through the early and mid-90s. And after that, it's been a lot drier. And so what we see is the population follows that trend toward in the 70s and 80s, we had very high populations of blue crabs and, and their abundance was, was very high and landings were very high. Now that is uh, lessened over time, just a lot of it's because of the drought issues and lower rainfall to where in those marginal areas like southeast Florida, people may notice less crabs in those areas are not as abundant, but we've seen that in many areas of Florida and in our population and stock assessments, we actually can correlate that uh, very closely with climate uh, driving forces like rainfall. Dr. Gandhi explains that while blue crabs are only one resource to Florida's fish industry, they do represent an important economic impact year to year. It's a, a substantial fishery. It's currently at about nine to twelve million dollars annually. It's all it's been all the way up in the past and say the eighties when it was there was a, a lot of commercial crab fishing going on up to uh, fifteen, twenty million dollars coming in uh, annually um, for through blue crabbing. Amanda Nally with the Florida Division of Marine Fisheries Management tells us about the net limitation amendment passed in the nineteen nineties. The Net Limitation Amendment is actually uh, is the name of it. It was a law that was in, enacted in Florida by the legislature, not by the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. But what it did was it basically limited the types of nets that could be used in Florida state waters, essentially uh, limiting their size to 500 square feet. It also basically eliminated the use of gill and entangling nets in Florida state waters. New net policies and legislation were not the only impact on blue crab populations. Another was endorsements. Amanda Nally explains. An RS endorsement is a restricted species endorsement. We have uh, a lot of species are what we consider restricted species, and you have to have an additional license for that. So blue crab is considered a restricted species, so you would have to have that res restricted species endorsement on top of it. We've limited that program, so it's a limited entry program. There's only so many blue crab endorsements that are out in the, the commercial industry as of right now. Since the 1990s, a number of policies and laws were put in place to monitor and respond to the blue crab population. 
Although in some areas, such as southeast Florida, we've seen fewer and fewer blue crabs, their populations are thriving in other parts of the state. That was Dr. Ryan Gandy and Amanda Nally, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society to get our daily post Today in Florida History. Find even more on our website at myfloridahistory.org and join us right here again next week. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.